Hey there, welcome back to ENT in a Nutshell. Today we are joined by rhinologist Dr. Garrett Choby, and we will be discussing CSF leaks. Dr. Choby, thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So today we'll be talking about CSF leaks, and I do want to say that there are different types of CSF leaks. There are some in the temporal bone, which are discussed in a different episode in the otology section. And there's also iatrogenic and traumatic CSF leaks, which we'll touch on just a bit. But today our focus will mainly be spontaneous CSF leaks. So Dr. Choby, when a patient comes to your clinic and they have a spontaneous CSF leak, how do they usually present? So these patients are uh, classically going to present with unilateral rhinorrhea. This may have been missed over the years and mistaken for things like allergic rhinitis or drainage, but when you ask carefully, they may say, it's always from my left side or always from my right side. And when it's unilateral, it's always a tip-off to you that you got to think about CSF uh, rhinorrhea. Are there any other, you know, symptoms or ways they describe this fluid that can tip you off as well? Some patients will tell you that it, it tastes salty. So when it drips in the back, it might taste a little bit salty. And classically, they say it's, it's all, mostly it's all the time. It's also when they lean forward. It can be a higher flow. That's classically referred to as the dandy maneuver, uh, this leaning forward. I also find that if it's a sphenoid leak, it may come out sort of as a rush because it's accumulated in that sphenoid sinus. When they lean forward, it comes out as, as a, large, a large volume, if you will. Maybe a little bit less so in an ethmoid or cribriform leak, but uh, more so with a sphenoid. And when you're in clinic, maybe you'll scope a patient. Can you usually find the CSF leak? If it's not localized on a scan before they come in to see you, it can be a little bit difficult. What I oftentimes will do is, is use a 30-degree scope looking upwards in the sphenoethmoidal recess and have them lean forward for me and take a close look there. You can also visualize the olfactory cleft pretty well if it happens to be a, a cribriform leak, but it can be challenging sometimes to see the actual site on, on scope exam. And as I mentioned earlier, there is uh, maybe some overlap in otology and rhinology here with CSF leaks because it can come out of the nose even if it's not coming from the sinuses, right? Yeah, great point. It's always very important if someone presents with CSF rhinorrhea to make sure you look at both their tegmen on their CT scan as well as do a, a thorough ear exam because some folks with lateral skull base leaks will come to the station tube and into the nose and they may present with leakage from their nose but you really don't want to mistake that uh, for a CSF rhinorrhea and make sure you get over your otology partners if, if it is a lateral skull base leak. Sure. So what's the pathophysiology involved with these CSF leaks? Why do they happen? Classically, these patients have um, elevated intracranial pressure. And the thought is that over time, that thins the skull base until they eventually form, form a leak. Uh, CSF is produced in the choroid plexus and by the ependymal cells and produces up to 500 mils or so a day uh, in total. Now, when you get check-in opening pressure in these patients, uh, when their system is sealed off, normal pressure is about 10 to 15 uh, in general terms. And these patients are classically very elevated. Some of them in my practice I've seen elevated uh, 30, 40, or even 50 in some cases. And what other um, patient characteristics will you see in these folks? Classically, these patients are obese and more commonly are female than male, usually in the middle age, so 30s, 40s, 50s in that, in that age range. Many patients also have uh, long-term headaches and may have vision changes like blurry vision as that pressure is transmitted across the optic nerves. And lastly, if you, if you pick it up on a scan you've seen, you can also look for an empty cella, which is a classic finding of elevated uh, intracranial pressure. Mm -hmm. And these folks sometimes present with months, maybe even years of dripping from their nose. Why do we treat it? W what happens if we don't treat these CSF leaks? 
The main rationale to treat these is, is for long-term prevention of meningitis in most cases. And that's really, you know, reasons one, two, three, and four. As a secondary reason, they're coming to you with a symptom. Usually it's drainage, so you're also treating that symptom for them. But the primary reason is to prevent ascending meningitis. And in rhinology clinic, which is going to be a little bit different from otology, what else is on your differential diagnosis for someone who presents with a quote-unquote CSF leak from their nose? Other things to think about, uh, it could be a, a routine reason for rhinorrhea, like allergic rhinitis or non-allergic rhinitis. Uh, vasomotor rhinitis is also a fairly common thing you may see in a rhinology clinic, and that's clear drainage from the front of the nose, something to be thought about or entertained. But again, classically, the, the spontaneous CSF rhinorrhea is unilateral, and there's usually some fairly characteristic patient findings like the obesity, more commonly in females in the middle age range. So someone's in your clinic, they have unilateral rhinorrhea, maybe it's an overweight female, maybe they have vision changes, headaches, so your suspicion is pretty high. Uh, and let's say that they don't have any imaging or anything else. What's your workup for this patient? So if I have a high suspicion, uh, my initial step is usually testing the fluid. There's a number of ways you can test it, but for sure the most definitive way is a beta-2 transferrin test. If they're leaking enough, this can be collected in a small cup and sent off as a specimen. Alternatively, cotton pledges can be placed in the nose and then collected uh, for testing. Now, beta-2 transferrin is tested here at our institution, so it's a very quick test, and so we can send it right down. But most institutions need to send it in via the mail. It needs to be kept cold so the protein does not uh, break down. So there's some kits out there that um, help to keep it cold while it's sent in, which should be uh, noted when you think about doing the testing in your office. Do you get beta-2 on all your patients that you suspect CSF leaks? I do. So in general terms, I, I want to have a positive beta-2 before I'll, I'll consider treating them. And what type of imaging will you obtain in these patients? As my first step in imaging, I usually will just get a fine-cut uh, maxofacial non-contrast CT scan. This is helpful because it'll... In many cases, show the site of the leak, especially if the sinus next to it is somewhat opacified, classically in the sphenoid. You can often just pick out that thin area of bone and pinpoint the leak in many cases. You can also look for other things like thinning of the tegmin or scalloping of the skull base or even the empty cella you can see in many cases, which are a tip off for the elevated pressure. And what are some of the more common sites that you'll see, um, certainly in the operating room, but also on uh, imaging for folks with CSF leaks? Classically, with spontaneous CSF leaks, the two most common sites are the sphenoid, classically the lateral recess of the sphenoid, and then either the ethmoid, or the, excuse me, either the cribriform or the ethmoid roof, and more commonly the cribriform. There can be leaks other places like the frontal sinus and elsewhere, but for sure the two most common are the sphenoid and then the cribriform. And just to dig a little bit deeper, because I've asked, I've been asked this more times than I care to share. From my understanding, there's an anatomic structure in the lateralized sphenoid recess. What is that, and is it real? <laughs> Are you referring to Sternberg's canal, <laughs> the the myth of Sternberg's canal? Uh, it it it's uh, fairly debated, I would say. Uh, I I I'm not a big believer in Sternberg's canal, to be quite honest with you. Although there are some anatomic studies that suggest it. I think more commonly, this is an area of thin bone, usually lateral to V2. There can be some just some thin parts of the bone there that, that an encephalocele or, or CSF will sneak around. But uh, if you get asked about it, there, there is the, the mythological Sternberg's canal. Right. And you mentioned encephalocele. Uh, how often do you see that, or what does it look like on scan? 
typically on a CT scan, an encephalopathy will show just uh, a pooching through of, of that of those dural contents with fluid inside of it, more easily discerned probably on an MRI than a CT scan. Occasionally, I've, especially if it's a sphenoid encephalocele, it may fill the entire sphenoid, and it's hard to tell it's an encephalocele on a CT because the whole thing just looks so pacified. But more commonly, those are going to occur in that lateral recess of the sphenoid, but certainly could poke through in the, in the ethmoid as well. So you brought up MRI. Are, is an MRI necessary for these patients? When or when don't you obtain these? I don't think an MRI is necessary. And unless they come with one, we don't usually order one. They can be helpful to discern uh, an encephalocele. You can look for that uh, T2 signal throughout uh, showing a, a fluid-filled sac with the encephalocele. It may be more definitive to looking for an empty cella as well, but I don't, I don't routinely get them unless, unless I think for some reason they would, they would need it. And some patients who present with a CSF leak, it's a slam dunk. They're leaning over to tie their shoes. They have rhinorrhea on the CT scan. You see the dehiscence where you kind of expect it. But what do you do in patients or for patients who you suspect a CSF leak, but you can't really find it on the CT scan and you don't have positive beta 2? Again, I, I think in my practice, if we have many patients who may come thinking they have a leak, until they show me a positive beta 2, I always have a little degree of reservation whether they're actually leaking. So I really like to get a positive beta 2 to know for sure. To further work this up, especially if they have a positive beta 2, but you, don't, you can't localize it yet. One helpful adjunct can be a CT cisternogram. This is where a, a lumbar puncture uh, is performed with uh, radionucleotide, radionucleotide uh, uh, injection, if you will. And then uh, CT scans are ob obtained usually immediately, then a few hours afterwards, which can help to show if there's uh, fluid in, in the sinus cavities and help to localize that leak in some cases. Other options would be to go directly to the operating room and perform a lumbar puncture with fluorescein. That's an off-label use and some things you need to talk about the patient, like things like risk of seizure, et cetera. But there are some pretty well-defined protocols for a fluorescein which are helpful. And then uh, an endoscopic exam can be performed looking for the fluorescein in the nose. But ideally, you want to localize that ahead of time, either with a CT scan or a CT cisternogram before you get to the operating room. So once you've identified a patient with a CSF leak and you have an idea of where it is, we'll want to start talking about treatment. Is there a medical therapy that can save patients from going to the operating room? The short answer on that is not really. There was a fairly controversial paper published this year about using acetazolamide in spontaneous leak patients to try to get them to seal up without operative intervention. However, there's also been other published data showing that the longer you wait to fix a leak, the higher rates of meningitis there are. So in general, we treat these patients not as an emergency, but in a relatively short time period uh, to prevent the risk of meningitis. And in general, surgery is the definitive treatment for them. And when you see a patient in clinic who you have high suspicion of CSF leak or you've confirmed it with your uh, beta-2 transferrin, the risk is meningitis. So do you immediately start treating them with antibiotics? That's also a fairly controversial thing. In my practice and in most rhinology practices, we don't routinely treat them for, for meningitis. The risk of meningitis is actually fairly low in this population, to be quite honest with you. There's also some protective mechanism probably of the positive intracranial pressure pushing things into the nose as opposed to in reverse, which may protect them. But we think that it's probably uh, not worth treating them risk of antibiotic complications compared to the risk of meningitis in most of these patients preoperatively. So we've been suggesting through this time that surgery is going to be the definitive uh, cure for this. 
when you have a patient with a CSF leak, what is your surgical approach? How can you fix a CSF leak? What kind of exposure do you need? And what tools do you use? So there's been a paradigm shift over the past 20 to 30 years. We treat the vast majority of these endoscopically in my practice and in most practices. And uh, I can't think of the last one besides a surgically created leak that we need to repair via an open approach. So um, endoscopically for the vast majority. Again, I think it's really important to do your very best to pinpoint the exact site preoperatively. And we'll talk a little about differences in treating both sphenoid versus cribriform leaks. Uh, there are different mechanisms to do this. Um, some folks will give a lumbar puncture being the case and do fluorescein in every case. Uh, we don't do that routinely, again, unless we need help in localizing the site of the actual leak. A number of things can be discussed, both in, in regards to inlays or putting things through the defect as well as onlays. And a number of options are out there depending on the site of the leak and what your approach may be. So when you approach uh, a CSF leak, what are the layers that you feel like are necessary to create a good repair? I think for the majority of cases, uh, the, the most important layer and the thing we focus on really is the intranasal layer, the mucosal layer. And that can fix the vast majority of leaks. Depending on the size and the site of the leak, we will occasionally put something through that defect as well, things like duragen or occasionally fat. But uh, a free mucosal graft or a nasal septal flap will fix the majority of cases without doing a formal inlay for these spontaneous leaks. So you said free mucosal graft and nasoceptal flap. Can you tell us what these are and how you choose when to use them? So I'll start with free mucosal grafts. Those are a little bit easier. You can think of it along the lines of a skin graft, if you will. These can be harvested from a number of areas. My preferred spot is the nasal floor. There's very low morbidity there. They can also be harvested thing from things like the inferior middle turbinate or even the nasal septum. And this is a fairly hardy layer of mucosa along with the periosteum below it. And that's important to keep its orientation. So when you place it in the defect to make sure it's placed properly so the mucosa is not facing the bone. And it's also very important that in the site of your defect, you have that bone cleared 360 degrees around the defect such that when you put in your free graft, it's really secured against the bone and not against other mucosa. And can you describe the nasoceptal flap? Yeah, the nasal septal flap is, is our, is our workhorse, workhorse for skull waste reconstruction for most cases. It's a flap of the nasal septal mucosa based on the posterior septal artery, which is a branch of the sphenopalatine artery, as it comes across the rostrum of the sphenoid below the natural os of that sphenoid sinus. We typically harvest this with a needle tip bovi cautery and have a nice wide pedicle, and then widen that uh, distal uh, paddle on the flap once you reach the head of the middle terminate in order to diminish the risk to the olfactory fila in that area. And this can be rotated to a number of areas, including the anterior cranial base, like the cribriform or ethmoid roof, or more posteriorly along the uh, sphenoid sinus, the cella, lateral recess, etc. I typically will select a septal flap if there's a larger defect, like, for instance, a large encephalocele. If I know the patient has very elevated intracranial pressure in revision cases or when there's multiple defects, for instance, along the cribriform. And are there different success rates between the free mucosal graft and the nasoceptal flap? So for spontaneous leaks, both are actually quite successful in most cases, um, a greater than 90 to 95% success rate in most cases. When you look at the surgical literature, it has been shown with high flow CSF leaks, vascularized options are much more effective than free mucosal grafts when you look at those large defects created by big tumor surgery. But in spontaneous leaks, both are pretty effective. The main reason to think about a septal flap in some cases is it's much more robust. And there's, again, with really elevated pressure, 
less likelihood for a repeat leak later on with more hardy vascularized tissue than a free mucosal graft, especially if someone is not perhaps going to manage their elevated intracranial pressure postoperatively, which we'll discuss in a bit, which is a very important part of their treatment paradigm. And before going to the operating room, what uh, are the potential complications you counsel patients on? I talk to them about a number of things. Uh, the first thing I talk about is the potential for failure of the repair. Again, that in, in our experience, that failure rate is pretty low, probably 5% or so in general terms, but it does occur on occasion. I also talk about the risk of meningitis. You know, By sealing this off, you potentially put the patient at risk for meningitis. Uh, so we do get some perioperative antibiotics for most of these cases, uh, at, least, at least those of IV in the operating room, and occasionally post-op, depending on what their nose may look like. If, an, if it's a... Uh, Cribiform leak, I do talk to them about the risk of diminished olfaction long-term, at least unilaterally in some of those cases. Uh, and then lastly, I do talk to them that in some cases, they may have uh, worsened headaches immediately postoperatively or change in their vision because assumingly their pressure is going back up. And that transmission may cause some of those symptoms as we discussed. Is there morbidity related to the flaps that you harvest? There is. So with nasal septal flap harvesting, there is definitely some morbidity. Uh, there is long-term uh, crusting of the septum, which can occur for four to six weeks postoperatively. Uh, in some cases, there's an increased risk to the, to the cartilage in that area, things like septal perforation or healing issues in that area at the donor site. Um, it's also important to note that, uh, especially in those sphenoid areas, they may be at risk for um, injury to the vidian nerve, which could give them long-term dry eye, or possibly V2 numbness, especially in those in that Sternberg's Canal, quote-unquote, region, mm -hmm. could give them issues with V2 numbness long-term as well. So there is some morbidity to doing, these, to doing these repairs. And after surgery, you've already alluded to this, but they're not out of the woods yet. What other therapies or recommendations do you make to these patients? So again, the underlying issue in most of these patients is elevated intracranial pressure, and that needs to be addressed postoperatively. There's been some uh, published data showing that uh, success rates with spontaneous, or excuse me, with uh, endoscopic repair of over 90%. When patients do not manage their elevated pressure postoperatively, that success rate goes down to about 80%. So it is important to manage that long term. A number of options are available. We typically in our practice will get a, a lumbar puncture about a month after surgery to check that pressure. If you check it when they have ongoing leak, it's not a very accurate measurement because they have a pop-off valve, if you will, where their pressure is probably artificially low. So we check about a month afterwards, and if it's elevated, we may give them acetazolamide therapy, which is a diuretic therapy to, to lower pressure. Or if it's a repeat leak or they're really elevated, uh, shunt uh, may be entertained as well. We also counsel all patients that weight loss is very important. It's been shown that about a 10% weight loss uh, reduction may have a significant improvement in their elevated pressure. And we often refer them to our nutrition clinic or our weight loss clinics as well. You've already kind of touched on this, but the outcomes seem quite successful of over 90%. Uh, so what's your follow-up with these patients afterwards? So I do tend to see these patients uh, long-term for at least a year or so after surgery. Uh, that's to make sure that they've healed well, there's no donor site morbidity, as well as, to be quite honest, make sure they followed through with the recommendations for managing their elevated intracranial pressure. Um, I also like to make sure they get plugged in with ophthalmology to get a nice eye exam because sometimes they can have issues with their optic nerve uh, from the long-term elevated pressure. And uh, it's also important to make sure they see neurology long-term for help in managing this, uh, whether it's, again, via acetazolamide or with our neurosurgery partners, uh, treating with a shunt, et cetera. I feel like we've covered a lot today. Is there anything else you'd want to add? 
The last thing that I'll mention is that in my practice and many others, um, I treat these uh, with my neurosurgical partner. We do a lot of skull-based surgery together, but I also, I also think it's important for uh, co-managing these patients as there can be a lot of morbidity uh, to these procedures, as well as, again, assistance with their long-term uh, elevated intracranial pressure and potentially shunt management as well. So it's nice to, to do this as a tag team uh, from, from both services, so we both have a lot of good input for these patients. Sure. So just to summarize what we've talked about, uh, anterior skull base spontaneous CSF leaks often present with unilateral rhinorrhea, which is worsened with things like leaning forward or producing a Valsalva maneuver. This is often seen in a patient population uh, with idiopathic intracranial hypertension and is caused by chronic pressure at an already weak point, uh, which can be either at the lateral sphenoid sinus or at the cribiform. Workup includes analysis of fluid via beta-2 transferrin, a CT scan to identify where the leak might be, and if required, uh, more scans like a cisternogram. Surgical correction is basically the definitive therapy and is offered, yes, to improve quality of life, but more importantly, to prevent meningitis. Surgery includes visualization of the area endoscopically and can be sealed with a free mucosal graft or a pedicled flap, depending on the situation. And postoperatively, it's important to manage these uh, high pressures with either medication like Diamox, possibly a drain, uh, and also diet and weight loss. Anything else? No, I think that's great. Thank you. Thank you. This episode is coming to a close, but I did want to end with a few questions. I'll ask a question, wait a few seconds for you to either pause, or give the answer a thought, and then give you the answer. So the first question today is, what are the two most common locations for anterior skull-based spontaneous CSF leaks? The two most common locations for anterior skull-based spontaneous CSF leaks are the lateral sphenoid, and this can sometimes be correlated with Sternberg's canal, and the cribiform plate. Second question, what are the two types of repairs that can be offered for anterior skull base spontaneous CSF leaks? The two most common types of repairs for spontaneous CSF leaks is either a free mucosal graft, which can be obtained from several sites, including the floor of the nose, and also the nasoceptal flap, which is a vascularized pedicled flap off of the posterior septal artery. And my final question for today is, after you operate on patients to surgically correct spontaneous anterior skull-based CSF leaks, what post-op recommendations do you give patients? After successful surgical correction of these CSF leaks, patients should be educated to change their diet and try to lose weight. And furthermore, they can be treated with Diamox or acetazolamide. That's all for today. Thanks so much for joining, and we'll see you next time.